Good everyone. So yes, we've got a question time later on tonight. So any questions you've had over the Sermon on the Mount, feel free to store them up and ask them. Uh, but now I'm going to pray before we start with this passage. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not fall into the trap of the hypocrites of Jesus' time. Uh, we pray that we would not be people who sit here and listen to your word but then go away unchanged. Instead, Father, we pray that we will listen carefully, that we will seek to understand your word correctly, and then more than that, we will seek to live by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've uh, had seven weeks. This is the seventh week in the Sermon on the Mount in our uh, series so far. Uh, And I hope if you've heard nothing else uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard Jesus' call to be different. So even if you can't remember what was said every week over the seven weeks, I hope you've got that constant theme that's been coming at us, which is Jesus says, if you are one of my children, if you are a member of the kingdom of heaven, you should be different to the world around you. You should stand out in the way you live. And so we've had these two great images he's used. He's talking about how we are to be salt. We're to stand out like salt does when you put salt on your meal. And then in particular, if you jump back to chapter 5, verse 16, there's this call to be like lights shining in our world. So look at chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So it's this wonderful picture that as we seek to live for Jesus, as we seek to live as members of his kingdom, the world around us will look at us and they'll see how different we are, in particular in the way we love one another, in the way we treat one another, all these different ways, and they will want to say, they will want to say well, what, what's different about that person? And that will then mean that we have the opportunity to tell them I'm different because I'm someone who follows the Lord Jesus and God willing... And our prayer is that that will eventually result in them trusting in Jesus with us and glorifying God with us at the end of time. That's the hope. Uh, That is what Jesus says. That is why you should be so distinct from the world. That's why you should be a light in the world so that one day they might come and join you in giving glory to our God. Now, in chapter 6, suddenly, Jesus seems to get mixed up. Because he seems to contradict himself in the first verse of tonight's passage. So look now at chapter 6, verse 1. He's just been telling us for a chapter, don't withdraw from the world, live such godly lives that people will want to know the reason why you're different. But now, chapter 6, verse 1, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. How does that work? How can we, on one hand... Let our light shine before men, do our good works in front of people so that they might come and glorify God with us, and at the same time, not practice our righteousness in front of men. You know, has Jesus changed his mind in less than five minutes? Remember, it was one sermon for him, not seven weeks, like for us. Well, obviously not. Jesus hasn't changed his mind. In fact, these two calls don't contradict each other, I'm hoping you'll see. I hope what you'll see is they actually complement one another. They're the two sides of the same coin. Because what it's all about is about our motivation. The the question Jesus is dealing with tonight is, why do you do the good works that you do? See, back in chapter 5, Jesus was calling us to be different because that's just what it is. 
to be a child of God. That's just what it is, to be a member of his kingdom. We'll be different to the world. We don't do it to impress people. We do it just because that's what we do as saved children of God. And then when people see it, that's sort of like a side effect. That's sort of like a, a, an extra consequence. But it's not the reason we do it. We're not trying to do good works to impress people. We're doing them for the glory of God. But Jesus says one of the side effects of that is people will see it and then they will want to know the God you are serving. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, does it? I don't know about you, but I find often when I try to be righteous, the world laughs at me or, or the world condemns me or the world says that's just silly or, or all sorts of other things. Often the righteous person is persecuted rather than people come and be impressed by it. But even if people are impressed by your godliness, we want them to give the glory to God, not to us. We don't want them to say, he's such a good person, I wish he, I was like him. We want them to say, he seeks to glorify that God, that God must be worth knowing who sent his son Jesus. But in our sinfulness, we human beings are very, very good at mixing up our motivations. We're very, very good at doing things so that other people will think we're glorifying God. We're very, very good at doing things in order to be seen by men and just so that people will just see and say, how faithful is he? How generous is she? How wonderful are they? And it's only a subtle twist, isn't it? Two people are doing exactly the same good works. One of them's doing it out of right motives to glorify God. The other is doing it out of wrong motives to, so that people will glorify them. And so Jesus' point is the good works that God wants to see from us, the good works that God rewards, the good works that will lead to God saying, well done, good and faithful servant, when we stand before him in heaven, they are the works we do out of a genuine love for other people and out of a genuine desire to see God glorify. So if we do exactly the same good works, but we do them so that people will say, oh, isn't Phil so faithful? Isn't Phil so godly? Isn't Phil so whatever? Well, God couldn't care less about them. God just says, well, you've got what you wanted. You wanted people to pat you on the back. That's happened. So don't expect any reward from me. And this sort of hypocrisy is particularly a trap for what type of person? For the people sitting in here. That's who it's particularly a trap for. It's a problem within the church and especially with what you might call religious acts. You see, very few people go out and say, I'm going to go out into the world and tell people about Jesus, even though they don't want to hear, to be loved by men. It's things like prayer and giving and reading your Bible. It's the religious acts that other Christians might be impressed by where this is a temptation, where Christians might think I'm impressive even if our world doesn't. And so let's look at these three examples Jesus gives. Now remember, Jesus was talking to an Old Testament Jewish audience here. It's before his death and resurrection. So the examples are drawn from Old Testament religious acts. We've got to then bring it forward to us as New Testament believers. So the first example Jesus gives is giving to the poor. So look at verse 2. He says, So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. So almsgiving, as it was called, giving to the poor, was a religious duty of a faithful Jew. 
but obviously the principle applies to any sort of act of generosity, whether you're giving to the poor, whether you're supporting Anglicare, whether you're supporting your own church, whether you're supporting world mission through CMS, whatever it is. And it's a really, really simple thing, Jesus says. Don't announce to everyone how much you've given. Don't come in and blow the trumpet so that everyone's listening and say, I just put however much you put in the box at the back. The modern day equivalent might be, don't get one of those massive checks made up with your and hand it over so that people can applaud and say, oh, look at him, isn't he generous? You see, God would say, you've got your reward. Your reward is those people saying you're generous. That's it. You haven't done anything to honour me. Don't let your name be put on a plaque on a wall. Because that's just that's saying, look, there's your reward. Right there, it's on the plaque on the wall. As sad as it is, all those plaques on the back wall and all the ones I've got rid of over the years, those people have got their reward. It's having their name on the wall. It says, look at how generous that family is. Look at it. So whoever this person is over here, I can't, don't even know whose name it is. Don't read it out just in case their family's here tonight. But <laughs> received in full. Reward received. No reward from God. And God's point is, if you do that, well, you've got your reward already. That's called advertising, not generosity. I've been really sad lately. I keep getting emails from Christian organisations who, who then say, oh, and here is our platinum sponsor this year, and here is our gold-level sponsor. That's just worldliness. That is ungodly. I've seen it from conventions and all sorts of things lately. We don't do that. We don't give so that people will say, aren't they generous? Instead, what should we do? Look at verse 3. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, some people get all tied up in knots and say, well, how can my left hand not know what my right hand is doing? He's making a point. He's making a point. Make it so, it's not, make it so secret that you don't even know. Not that that's possible, but you get his point. You see... Keep your generosity quiet as a way of ensuring that your motivation is right. If you go telling people, then chances are the motivation is so that they will know. But if you keep it to yourself, then that's not even a temptation. The generosity that God loves is a generosity that flows out of faith and a genuine love for other people and a genuine desire to glorify God. Not a generosity that is even partially driven by a desire that other people will think more highly of me. Now, Jesus is not instituting some new set of laws here. That would be the great irony if Jesus instituted all these new laws in the Sermon on the Mount. He is not demanding secrecy above all else. Sometimes there is a time for people to know what you're giving. So sometimes people come to me and said, I'm not going to give electronically because the treasurer might know how much I'm giving and that would be disobeying Jesus. No. That is not what this is talking about, not unless you're particularly interested in showing off to Colin. That's not what this is saying. I always find it funny when Christians use this verse as a law to, to ensure that no one can ever ask me anything about my money and no one can ever question or challenge me on this area of godliness. My own personal practice is I try and share what I'm giving with at least one other godly mature Christian. And we keep each other accountable in that area, just as we do in other areas of godliness. I think Christians should share what they're giving in an appropriate way for that purpose, for accountability. So that someone can say, really, you're earning that and you don't give anything? That, that's ungodly. Jesus calls on you to be generous. Once in a while, 
those who've been around for any length of time will know, once in a while I get up here and I share how Victoria and I work out what we give. And I do that carefully and I do that hopefully with humility and questioning my motives. But the reason I do that is I feel that it's important that I'm accountable to you, that you be aware that I practice what I preach. Uh, And more than that, I want to give you models of what generosity might look like. But Jesus' point here is ask yourself, why do I need other people to know? If there's no good reason, then why am I telling anyone the only reason could possibly be that I want them to think more highly of me? God knows our heart. God knows what we do. He knows why we do it. And he knows if we're doing it for our glory instead of for his. Well, next, Jesus moves on to prayer. So look at verse 5. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. Human beings are pretty incredible, aren't we? Especially sinful human beings, we're pretty incredible. We manage to take the most wonderful gift from God, the ability to go to, go to the God of the universe who created us, to go to him and call him our father, and talk to him personally, we manage to take that and turn it into something that puffs up our pride. That takes an incredible perversion, doesn't it? But that's what sinful human beings do. And you can just imagine these Pharisees, can't you, standing there with their hands in the air and their eyes shut with these long, theologically astute prayers, but actually their eyes aren't quite shut, are they? They're sort of doing that flickering thing (laughs) because they just want to check, is everyone looking at me? Has everyone got their eyes on me? Does everyone agree that I'm a great godly man of God who's praying? And you can just imagine them with their eyes not quite closed because they just want to check that everyone's aware of just how passionate they are and just of how theologically astute they are and just how godly they are. I remember when I first went back to church, I'd, I'd walked away from church as a younger person. I, when I first went back to church, and I don't remember if I was a Christian yet or if I was still sort of thinking about it, uh, and we had in that church... Uh, an open prayer time every Sunday and so a microphone would be put in the middle of the church and anyone could get up and lead the church in prayer and a lot of the times it was wonderful it was a much smaller church than this was only about 30 or 40 people and a lot of the times it was wonderful people would get up and pray about all sorts of things but I remember sometimes sitting there and thinking what is with these people and I sat there as as either a non-Christian or a young Christian I thought and I, I knew my Bible well enough to go This is hypocrites praying. I remember feeling uncomfortable as people seemed to be more interested in showing off their Bible knowledge or or praying about how, what a great service they were doing in Kids Plus during the week or whatever it was they were praying. Prayers like this, now Heavenly Father, you know, I thank, actually they'd say just a few times too, I just, (laughs) I just thank you for the way you've used me this week to bring the gospel to all those kids at scripture. Thank you for giving me the chance to take time off work this week. And just really show my commitment to you in this act of humble service. And I I just pray that you might work in other people's hearts so that they might show the same sacrificial love as me. And and we laugh because we've all heard it. Victoria came up to me after I used that example this morning and said, I didn't know you'd written down those prayers by those people. She was that prayer talking to God at all? Who was it talking to? It was talking to the people there and saying, look at me. I remember when I was a young Christian and we'd have communion. And uh, back then, we would go to something like this. We'd go up to the rail and then you'd go back and you'd sit in your pew 
after everyone had communion and I'd go back and other people would get down on their knees and close their eyes and pray. And I remember as a young Christian thinking, well, I better do that too. Half the time I wasn't praying, I was thinking about, actually that would be unhelpful for me to share what I was thinking about, but it wasn't godly, you know. But I'd go back and why would I do it? Because I wanted the people around me to think, oh, he's godly. He prays. He's like me, you know, that sort of thing. I bet half of them weren't praying either, but anyway. Hypocrisy is a terrible thing, isn't it? It's a terrible thing to turn prayer into a way of looking impressive to other people. So what does Jesus say? Look at verse 6. He says, but when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. It's the same point as about giving, isn't it? Prayer is between us and God. It's not something to be abused by us to impress people with. Now again, Jesus is not saying we should not pray in public. Who's leading the prayers tonight? I really feel sorry for the poor person who's got to lead the prayers after I preach on this. Well done, Anna. And this is not talking about you at all, so just remember that. But Jesus is not saying we should not pray in public or with other people. Jesus prayed in public. Jesus prayed in front of his disciples. He prayed with his disciples. Prayer is part of what we're actually called on, commanded to do when we meet together as God's people. The point is about our motivation, isn't it? That's the issue. Be careful not to turn prayer into building yourself up. I think this does mean that private prayer should be the heart of our prayer life. If you never pray other than when you come to church or when you get together with other Christians, well, firstly, that reflects a sad spiritual reality of where you're at at the moment. And I would encourage you to come and talk to me if that's you and let's talk about how we might be able to change that. But secondly, it leaves us open to this issue. Because if we're only ever driven to pray when other people are watching, then it suggests we only pray so that other people can see us and hear us. Prayer is between us and God. It's not for us to use to impress other people. Now, Jesus had some other things to say about prayer from verse 7. We're going to look at those next week from verse 7 down to verse 15. uh, Because today we're dealing with the third example of hypocrisy that Jesus gives, which is fasting. So go down to verse 16 now. He says, whenever you fast, don't be sad-faced like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive, so their fasting is obvious to people. I assure you, they've got their reward. Fasting was something in the Old Testament that was done before certain feast days, in the lead-up to the feast days, like the Day of Atonement uh, and things like that. It was a religious duty, Uh, and you did it, For all sorts of reasons, but you did it to show repentance to God, to show that you were giving things up. But in particular, it was tied to prayer. And so the idea was to focus your mind. You're not distracted by other things like eating and drinking and all those other distracting things. Instead, you could focus on prayer. Fasting is never commanded in the New Testament. So nowhere will you find a thing saying you should fast as a Christian. So if you want to fast, that's great. If you don't want to fast, that's great too. I really don't care. Uh, the only time you see it in the, in the church is in the book of Acts, uh, where it was particularly tied to having that focused time of prayer. So people would fast and pray at the same time. So some Christians might choose to fast, good on them. Others will not, good on them too. But if you do fast, don't tell anyone about it. Don't post it on Facebook. That's the equivalent 
of, of modern day blowing your trumpets. Literally, actually. But anyway, so I find it always interesting around the Lent time of year. Lent is not in the Bible. I don't have a great deal of time for the idea of Lent. And if you're saying, what's Lent? Now you can ask that in the question time and I'll say, I don't think you really need to know. So, um, uh, but in time of Lent, suddenly your Facebook feed comes up with, I'm giving up this for Lent or I'm doing this for Lent. I think Jesus would say, reward given. Don't expect any other reward for that. You see, the Pharisees made a big deal with their fasting. They would walk around looking hungry and tired. And they'd come in and go, oh, man. Oh. And people would go, oh, are you fasting again, Phil? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they'd say, look at how much he fasts. He must be really godly. So what does Jesus say? Look at verse 17. But when you fast, put oil on your head. That's, that was, that's like, get ready to go out. Make yourself look presentable. That's what that's saying. And wash your face so that you don't show your fasting to people, but to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. See, this is the incredible thing. I am so godly. None of you have known how much I've been fasting for the last <laughs> few years because I, I purposely bulk up so that you don't think I've been fasting. It's a simple point, isn't it? If you find fasting helpful, you do it, but don't make a song and dance about it and I don't want to see it. That's what he's saying. In fact, more than that, purposely look like you're not fasting. That's Jesus' point. And it's so simple. If you want people to talk you up, then don't expect God to talk you up. There it is. Because it's not just giving and praying and fasting, is it? We are tempted to do this with any act of righteousness. If you are not ever tempted to do this, then either you are much more godly than me, which is entirely possible, or more likely, you're never tempted because you do so few acts of righteousness that you've got nothing to boast about. See, either if we're not tempted by this, it is probably because we give so little and pray so little and don't do so few acts of righteousness that we've got nothing to be seen by men. God does not reward the person who gives or prays or fasts in order to be seen by men, but he also does not reward the person who does not give and does not pray and does not do whatever other acts of righteousness you can come up with. And the thing is, there are not any easy rules on this. That's why I made sure we looked at Matthew 5 before we looked at Matthew 6 tonight. You see, it's about motivation. You can't, it's, it's about holding that tension together. The, the reality is, whenever you do an act of righteousness, there will be the temptation and you will need to ask, am I doing this for God's glory or am I doing this for my glory? Any act of righteous piety has to walk this line. Every time I preach, I have to walk this line. When I tell a joke in my sermon... Is it because I'm a bit silly or is it because I just want you to actually think I'm a funny guy? Is it actually, is it helpful for you or is it because I want you to think I'm a good preacher? You see, any person who does any sort of act publicly of Christian godliness feels this tension and walks this line. So when people raise their hands in the air when they sing, it's not a custom in our church, but when, you know, when people raise their hands in the air and, and, and sing at church like that, for some people there's a genuine way of expressing their praise to God good on them but when that's what you do in a church it's very easy to then become the way of showing the people around you how devoted you are to God and we do it 
not because it's something that's helpful for the people around us, but to show people, oh, look at how passionate she is. Look at how much she gets in to the singing. She must be godly. As I say, I don't think that's a particular issue in our church, but what about closer to home? When you pray for other people, I hope you do pray for other people, it's always or sometimes encouraging for them to know it, isn't it? It's really encouraging when someone comes and says to me, I heard you're having a tough time during the week and I've been praying for you. It's so encouraging to know that your Christian brothers and sisters care enough to do that. But when I tell them, am I telling them for their encouragement or am I telling them so that they will think, what a faithful prayer he is. Isn't he godly? But when I read my Bible, it could be a great example for others to see you reading your Bible in public. I make a point of reading my Bible where my kids can see me. So they see reading your Bible is a normal part of the day. It's not just something dad does off in his office or, or doesn't do off in, off in his office perhaps. You know. uh, or you're on a cafe, at a cafe and you pull out your Bible and read it. I sometimes read, purposely read my Bible on the train. I don't catch the train in order to read my Bible. When I'm on the train, I, I pull out my Bible and I'm intentionally doing it. I think my motives are good. It's so that other non-Christians will say, what are you reading? And I'll say, oh, it's funny you ask. I'm reading this Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. You, you know, that, so I did. Now, these days, people are sort of so scared of ever having eye contact with anyone. No one can see with everyone just like this on the train. But, but you see, it's a fine line, isn't it, between reading your Bible in public to encourage people or whatever, as opposed to reading your Bible so that other people will say, oh, he reads his Bible a lot. Isn't he godly? When I share with people about opportunities I've had to share Jesus with other people, Share the gospel with others. Am I sharing it so that you can pray for them and be encouraged by our partnership in the gospel? Or am I sharing it so that you'll be impressed by my zeal for Jesus? You see the tension? The issue is motivation. What is our real reason? What is the real motivation in our hearts? Two people can do exactly the same thing, but one does it for godly reasons, to glorify God. The other does it for their own glory. And then, of course, there's just that reality that all too often our motives are mixed, aren't they? Do you ever do anything with 100% pure motives? I don't think I do. I think there's always a motive of pride somewhere down there as much as I try and get rid of it. There's always a motive of whatever else hidden away there. Like Paul in Galatians 5 or Romans 7, we always have this battle going on inside us. If you're a Christian, this is the reality of the Christian life. We have this battle between our old sinful nature that says, look at me, and the Holy Spirit that says, look at God. That battle is always going on until Jesus returns. So I genuinely am sharing the fact with you that I shared the gospel with someone so that you can pray for them and so that you can be encouraged by it. But that doesn't mean there isn't a little part of me that likes the fact that you think I've got great zeal for Jesus. I genuinely do want you to pray for that person, but there's another part that wants you to like me and be impressed by me. Isn't that battle just the reality? Isn't that just the reality of the Christian life? And that's what should make us so thankful that the greatest reward that God gives us, the greatest reward that Jesus offers, is not earned on the basis of our acts of righteousness. And it's not even earned on the basis of the purity of our motives. What is the greatest reward Jesus gives us? 
And it is a free gift, a gift of grace. It's his gift of forgiveness. You see, Jesus died for my hypocritical heart. And he died for your hypocritical heart. Our salvation in Jesus, our forgiveness for sin, is a wonderful, free gift of grace. So yes, now, as forgiven sinners, from this passage, I want to challenge you to repent of your desire to do things to be seen by men. I want to challenge you to repent of your desire to receive glory from other people that is due to God. And as forgiven sinners, I hope you long to live for God's glory alone. I hope you pray, give me an undivided heart. And as forgiven sinners, I hope you yearn for God's praise for your life of faithful service. But until Jesus returns, that will always be a battle. And so I want you to get that same double application that we've had every week in the Sermon on the Mount from this passage. On the one hand, let's repent of our hypocrisy. Let's seek to live for God's glory alone. But also let's praise God that Jesus died for our hypocrisy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we admit to you that all too often we do things to be seen by men rather than for your glory. And we are sorry and we repent of that. Father, we pray that you might work in us by the Spirit to give us purer motives. And we pray that we might do the godly things you call on us to do, the good works you've set aside for us to do, we pray that we might do them purely for your glory. But Father, we thank you that Jesus died to forgive us for the times we don't do that. And we thank you that he has given us that wonderful free gift of salvation. And so more than anything, we say thank you, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So now you'll have to be brave tonight. Uh, You'll have to put up your hand if you have a question from the Sermon on the Mount or whatever else you want to ask me about, as long as it's... Anyway, um, uh, and uh, we don't have the high-tech SMS system tonight, so the high-tech system is if you don't feel you can ask it, you can whisper it to the person next to you and they can put up their hand and ask their question. So, any questions? It's always daunting at this point where you wonder if anyone's got a question. But maybe the sermons have been so startlingly clear over the last five weeks that... Uh, Yes, great question. Yes, the question is, how do you just not give up with that constant battle? And I don't think it's just with motives, it's with everything, isn't it? You know, uh, how do you not give up with that constant battle in our motives? And then also, uh, what, how do you work at having pure motives? Yeah, great question. Uh, if you turn to Romans 7, uh, Romans 7 is one of those really tricky chapters in the Bible and it's uh, the one where Paul talks about if you look at verse 16 uh, and if I do what I do not want to do I agree with the Lord is good so I'm now no longer the one doing it it's sin living in me and he goes you know and I don't do what I want to do and I do do what I don't want to do and all that sort of thing and that that is the reality of our struggle as a Christian all too often we want to do what is honoring to God but then we don't and then we do do it but our motives are mixed and so forth but he gets right to the end and he says at verse 24, and this is the key verse, he says, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this dying body? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Uh, so there's the first answer. The way we keep going is we remember that at the end, Jesus will return, we'll be resurrected and we'll be a part of a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more sin 
and where that tension is gone. So remember what we look forward to. The other thing is to remember that it is a battle. Uh, so remember that my experience... So sometimes people struggle with this and say, oh, I'm always struggling and so forth. And they say, am I really a Christian? Well, the Apostle Paul struggled with it and, and wrote about the reality of his struggle. So that's the other thing is remember it's entirely normal to have that struggle. And so don't give up the battle. Don't think, oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a good Christian. What a silly... I hate it when people say that, I'm not a good Christian. A Christian is someone who's saved by grace through faith. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, so that's one part of it. And the other thing is to remember it's a spiritual battle. So what do we do about it? We pray and we pray for God's spirit to be at work in us to help us deal with that. Yeah, yeah. But it's a great question and hopefully that's helpful. Any other questions? Yeah, Pete. Great, great, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When I emailed Troy and said, why don't we have a question time tonight? I was sort of hoping no one would ask me any questions on that sermon, but that's all right. Uh, it's hard enough preaching. Um, uh, but I think the biggest thing we do is realise that uh, whatever a person's past, of any, this is any area, we, we treat them as a redeemed, loved brother or sister in Christ. I think that's the best way we care for people. I'm not a big fan of we've got to care for people in different circumstances differently. I think we care for people by loving people where they're at with whatever their background and so forth. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, in, that, if, in that particular issue, if they're particularly struggling with that issue of working out, did I do the right thing in the past? Well, the way we love them is by gently and lovingly sitting with them and reading the scriptures together and then working and praying about it. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think there's any special rules in that regard. As I said in that sermon, I think it's a wonderful thing that we have people right across our church uh, who are married, who are divorced, who are single and so forth because uh, God's church is a place for all people to come and find forgiveness in Christ, whatever has happened in our past. Yeah, so a good question, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Why are those... Yeah, so you're referring back to the Beatitudes from a few weeks ago now. And I'm not going to find it in Romans chapter 5. But if you go back to Matthew chapter 5. I think it's understanding what the mourning is there. So I I think I said when I preached on that, that uh, uh, sometimes that gets quoted at sermons as if to say, oh, we've read that verse of the Bible, even though you've now lost your loved one, you'll be comforted. Uh, And I think that is actually a hollow use of that verse. Uh, What this is particularly talking about is mourning for this world and the brokenness of this world and mourning for our own sin and mourning for the realities of the impact of our sin. And the reason we will be comforted is when Jesus returns, all of that will be dealt with, both sin and the consequences of sin, this fallen, broken world. So I think that, that is when the comforting will happen is when Christ returns and brings about a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more sin, no more suffering. Uh, I think that's how we'll be comforted. But at the same time, we find comfort now, don't we? In our future hope and the fact that it's certain because of Jesus. So it's not just they will be comforted, we're comforted now by the gospel, I hope. Which is one of the reasons a Christian funeral 
is so different to a non-Christian funeral. Worst part of my job is when people come and say, I want an Anglican minister to take my whatever's funeral, and I know they were not someone who trusted in Jesus. Because the reality is I have no words of comfort to share. Because the decision you make about Jesus in this life decides eternity. And so I have no words of comfort to a person who died rejecting Jesus. Now, I don't always know their state, and I, I will pray in hope and those sort of things. But uh, whereas in a strange sort of way, some of my best times have been taking the funerals of people who really were so clear that they love Jesus, because I can get up at the front and say, we do not mourn as people without hope. Uh, we will see this person again because they trusted in Jesus. Uh, and there's this strange thing where when you go to a funeral of a Christian, it is so different. And it, you notice now why mo most funerals don't pretend death hasn't happened. Most worldly, non-Christian funerals. And, and it all just becomes about eulogising the person. And half the time you're sitting there going, well, that's not the guy I knew. He wasn't that nice. Um, but actually, a Christian funeral talks about our real and living hope, and that is real, that's real comfort. Yeah. I sort of taken your question as a springboard to say some other things I thought might be helpful, but yeah, thanks for the question. Rob? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, peacemakers at their heart are people who seek to bring about God's peace on earth. So the greatest peacemaker is Jesus, of course, uh, but then the greatest peace you make is by preaching the gospel. To people because you're enabling them to have peace with God and then peace with one another but I think here Jesus is being a little more general than that his point is as opposed to the people who try and create division and so forth and and uh, try and tear people down it's peacemakers will be blessed people who look for the good for others and that sort of thing yeah good question yeah Peter yeah Good question. Yeah, so the question is, if I can sort of re-say it through the microphone uh, is, uh, and say it how I want to answer it, no, um, is, um, uh, is that uh, if we're not under the law anymore, but then Jesus says whoever breaks one of the least of these laws, does that apply to all those myriad of 600 and something laws in the Old Testament and like if you have mould on a brick in your house, you must get the priest to come and remove it and that sort of thing. And so the answer to that is, we are not under the law. So the law does not condemn us, uh, and there is no requirement to keep the Old Testament law. It's, it's time has gone in that sense. But it still stands as God's word to us, understood as fulfilled in Christ. And so we're not free to get rid of any part of the law, uh, and instead, what we have to do is understand how Jesus fulfills it and then seek to live by it. So many of the laws were about when God was working through the nation of Israel, about them remaining separate and holy and distinct from other nations. Well, Jesus has fulfilled those laws, but we still read them to, to learn as God's wisdom and be reminded we are meant to be different. We are meant to be distinct from the nations around us. But if you have mould on your brick, you're not required to go and get it removed and then take a dove to be sacrificed at the temple and all those sorts of ideas. Yeah. Uh, but that is a question that Christians have often struggled with, is that question of what extent am I under the Old Testament law? And the, on one hand, the answer is we're not. 
if you break an Old Testament law, you are not condemned. You are, and many of them don't apply to us because we're, we're after Jesus. But at the same time, we still see it as the word of God that points us forward to Jesus and we seek to live by it as fulfilled in Jesus. So that's a simple answer, I hope, to a complex question, but good question, yeah. Steve, see the questions are coming. There's no one asking questions, now everyone's asking questions. Yeah, where, where would we do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think in all sorts of places, uh, and, and it's only our imagination that can limit the places. So Steve's question, sorry for everyone else's uh, there. Steve's question is, where would we apply that idea from verse 41 and 42, where if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too? And, and just think about, you know, when you're the person who owns the trailer, and the person comes around and says, can you give us a hand moving this furniture? And you're really resenting the fact that they're using you because you're the bloke that owns the trailer. But then you don't give them, you don't just help them put the furniture in the trailer. You then say, and drive my car as well because it's got a better tow bar. And, and I'll help you carry it up those four slides, flights of stairs at the other end. You, you know, you can apply this to a myriad of things. More, more particularly, it's what might be where someone is actually really taking advantage of us in a way. You know, I regularly, not so much now, but uh, in in the past, we would regularly have people just come and knock on our door and say, I've just had an operation to remove my kidney. It's always the kidney. Um, and, you know, I've lost my wallet and I need to get to Bathurst and the train leaves at 11.22 tonight and it's now 11.07 and I need $72 to buy a ticket to Bathurst. And 99 times out of 100, I'm absolutely certain they're taking me for a ride, uh, literally. Uh, and... Uh, but unless I am 100% certain, I will go with them. I've gone with them to the train station and bought them the ticket and bought them a Coke and a packet of chips for the ride as well. And I know I'm being taken for a ride, but I would rather help the one person who really has lost their kidney and needs to get to Bathurst and be taken to a ride nine, for a ride nine times than be the person who's really sceptical. Now, having said that, there was another person who came and I discovered he was fleecing people and he came to the Bexley congregation where there's a lot of elderly people and I physically removed him from the property and threw him over the fence. You, you know, like, like, because that was a man abusing the poor and, and, and helpless. You, you know, so you see what I'm saying about it's not about laws, uh, but I would rather be taken for a ride than than be the person who is uh, quick to say no and justify my lack of generosity. Yeah. Do you know in the early church, they found documents written back around the time of the early church where people write about, hey, if you want some free food, just go and ask the Christians. They'll give it to anyone. You know, and that sort of stuff. And you know, if, you, if you want to get rid of a kid, dump it on the church doorstep because they'll look after them. And in fact, a lot of studies sort of show that one of the biggest things that, that led to the massive growth of Christianity, which is unheard of, the way Christianity grew in the, in the third and fourth centuries, was it was two things. It was the way Christians responded to being attacked and persecuted by not retaliating. And eventually people said, what is it with these guys? And the other thing was the way they looked after orphans and widows. And there was no safety in that time. And people eventually said, uh, wow, there's something about this gospel. And it led to the massive growth of the Christian gospel. Yeah. 
Any one final question or not? One over here. Yeah, that raises one of, I think, the hardest questions there is. So the question is, how can someone be least in the kingdom of heaven? You know, are there levels in heaven sort of idea? Uh, And one answer to that is Jesus is using a rhetorical device. He's saying, you know, you're you're actually, you think you're impressive, but you're actually less impressive. And I think he might be doing that here. But we have to remember there are rewards in heaven. I think the New Testament is clear about this. Uh, and, and we can't work it out because we always love to compare ourselves to one another. And in our sinfulness, that sinful nature means we come up with impure things. Oh, so they get a big mansion and I'm living in the outhouse or something. You know, that's sort of idea. That's not what it's like. Uh, the picture is that everyone will be just overjoyed forever. But there will be people who stand before God on the judgment day, Christians, who say, I wasted my life. I had the gift of eternal life and I wasted it and I didn't use it wisely. And there will be other people who look around and they see people there who are there because they shared the gospel with them or because they generously supported the turners who shared the gospel with them or whatever, you know, uh, or people who were encouraged and strengthened by the fact that they went and cooked the meals or whatever it is. And, and God will say to that person, well done, good and faithful servant. So it's an area where we've got to be careful not to go beyond where the Bible says, but the Bible is very clear that hell will be awful for everyone there, but it will be more awful for people who had lots of opportunities to hear about Jesus and didn't repent. So it'll be more awful for the person who sat in church all their life and never repented and believed. And heaven will be wonderful for anyone who is there because they trust in Jesus and no one will be disappointed and all that sort of thing but there is a recognition of people who lived out their faith being rewarded for that in heaven but I think the reward is things like seeing people there who are there either directly or indirectly because of your service uh, and the reward of God saying well done good and faithful servant yeah rather than some crass idea of you get a gold-plated mansion which is just not the picture of heaven. Yeah. So, great question, though. That'll do us now. How about I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you for all that it teaches us uh, about what true righteousness looks like. And Father, we thank you for the way we have come to know Jesus. So we know that even as we fall short of his standards of true righteousness, we know that we have that wonderful free forgiveness through faith in him. And more than that, now, as forgiven sinners, we pray that we would seek to live with that true righteousness. And in the light of tonight's passage, we pray that you would help us to repent of our hypocrisy, to repent of the times we do supposedly godly things, not for your glory, but so that others will think we're godly. And that we ask that you might continue to help us to put to death that sinful nature and instead live by your spirit within us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.